Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. And speaking of the soul of the conservative movement, today's guest, Jason Riley, is a return guest, and he will be discussing his new book about Thomas Sowell, who truly is the soul of the conservative movement. Jason Riley is an opinion columnist at the Wall Street Journal, where his column, Upward Mobility, has run since 2016. He's also a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and provides television commentary for various news outlets. Mr. Riley, a 2018 Bradley Prize recipient, is the author of several books, including The Black Boom, Please Stop Helping Us, How Liberals Make It Harder for Blacks to Succeed, which he was kind enough to discuss with us when it came out. And the book we'll be discussing today, Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. I appreciate it. You're welcome. In the documentary, Thomas Sowell, Common Sense in a Senseless World, which you narrated, Dr. Sowell said something extremely interesting about his childhood in Harlem. We were much poorer than the people in Harlem or most anywhere else today. It was my last year or two at home that we finally had a telephone. But in another sense, in the sense of things you need to get ahead, I was enormously more fortunate than most black kids today. What did Dr. Soul mean by this? Well, um, what what he meant was that he had a lot of loving adults around him when he was a child. Um, Soul was actually orphaned. Uh, uh, as an infant. Um, uh, his, his father died before he was born, and his mother died giving birth to a younger sibling. So Sol was raised by a great aunt on his uh, mother's side, and uh, she had two adult children of her own, uh, one of whom was married. And so Sol was essentially raised by four adults as an only child. And that was the life uh, he uh, was living in Harlem that he was recalling when, when he made that statement. And, and so um, he's, he's written elsewhere about the advantages of being an only child, period. You know, no, 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 no matter your race, no matter uh, your background or what have you, uh, firstborn children and only children uh, tend to do very well in life. But, um, but he was talking there about um, the family structure that uh, he was raised in. And the importance of that and, and contrasting that today with uh, the breakdown of, of the family and, and how that has proven to be a disadvantage for uh, a lot of Blacks, particularly low-income Blacks. And I can definitely relate to that, having grown up not well off myself, but also as an only child surrounded by loving adults. So the vocabulary that you pick up, the things that you're interested in, uh, definitely are are enhanced by that experience. Dr. Soule's career, both as a student and professor, was often so contentious that one wonders if he might have been happier had he passed this tryout for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Why was he basically an academic nomad before settling down at Hoover? Well, um, partly it has to do with 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 Soule's personality. He's kind of a prickly guy. Um, he doesn't suffer fools. And um, academia is a place um, uh, where you kind of go along to get along. You have to learn to play well with others. He had kind of sharp, sharp elbows. Um, so that's partly it. Um, but what else was going on uh, uh, there is the time period in which Sol was trying to make a career in academia. So this is the, 
the 1960s. And, um, uh, you know, this is a period of, of, of civil rights activism, uh, women's rights activism, gay rights activism, uh, anti-war activism. And a lot of these movements uh, use the academy uh, as, as a platform for expressing their views. So higher education was really going through a transformative period here, trying to find its way in, in, uh, in, in the wake of all these social movements. And um, Sol wanted to uh, sort of teach the way he had been taught when he attended college in the 1950s. And that was increasingly difficult to do in the 1960s. So he's having these constant run-ins with faculty and administrators and students, you know, no, you cannot be excused from class, go to an anti-war rally. Um, uh, no, we're not gonna spend the whole class period talking about the latest news headlines. I'm here to teach economics, you're here to learn economics and so forth. And, and that type of straightforwardness, that type of approach to teaching was increasingly out of style uh, during a period when Tom, Tom was trying to establish himself in, 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 in academia. And so you see him uh, moving from school to school throughout the 60s, having run-in after run-in. And finally, he gets this offer um, uh, in, in, in 1980, when he's at UCLA, from the Hoover Institution, which is based at Stanford University. But Hoover doesn't say he has to teach, doesn't have to have office hours. He can just write and do research. And so um, he jumps at this opportunity. And, uh, and, and that's where he has been ever since. And, and so, yes, there, there's a, there's a trade-off there. In the book, I, uh, uh, I talk about uh, some people who say they wish Tom had stuck it out in academia, that perhaps we'd have a lot more Thomas Sowell-like thinkers uh, out there today if they had taken his classes, if they had uh, studied under him, if he had been their dissertation advisors and so forth. And we don't have all that because Sowell's been at Hoover since 1980. But um, the trade-off there is, you know, if he, if he had stayed in the teaching, we probably wouldn't have all the books, um, all the newspaper columns. And, and I don't know if I'd give that up for anything. Very true. Very true. Uh, as key as anything uh, to, else to understanding Thomas Sowell is where he obtained his PhD. What can you tell us about the University of Chicago? Uh, its professors and its approach to economics that caused it to have such an impact in shaping Dr. Sowell as an economist and as a teacher? Well, the uh, Chicago School of Economics, as it's known, um, is, is um, something that uh, uh, gained prominence, particularly under Milton Friedman, the Nobel-winning economist, and George Stigler, another Nobel-winning economist. Um, uh, and they were Sowell's mentors at the University of Chicago. Um, uh, its reputation was uh, a place where empiricism was taken very seriously. Uh, economics wasn't just a theory, wasn't just about um, uh, theoretical modeling, uh, math, uh, maddocks, um, uh, and, and eloquent equations and so forth, uh, which is how it was treated at places like Harvard and MIT. At, at, at Chicago, economics was about uh, using this discipline to address real-world problems, everyday problems, and um, and 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 taking again an, an empirical approach, following the facts where they lead. Uh, Sol is someone who's much more interested in 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 how um, a policy, uh, not how it's intended uh, to to turn out, but how it actually turns out, what the experience has shown, and and trying to trying to determine the, the the worthiness, the value of this policy 
or that policy. And that was very much a Chicago school way of thinking about public policy. Now, now Sol would argue that, that he was thinking that way before he got to Chicago, that uh, it was a nice fit for him because he was always already thinking that way. But I do think that um, um, uh, he did gain a lot from attending that school, nevertheless, uh, from being mentored by uh, Milton Friedman and George Stigler, both of whom uh, continued uh, to be friends and mentors to him after he left school. Uh, and I think he, uh, to, to a large extent, modeled a lot of his public life uh, on, on uh, what they had done and how they had done it, namely Milton Friedman and um, his, his interest in explaining economics to non-economists. Tom has really distinguished himself as a scholar um, by writing books that can be readily understood by people who know nothing about economics. Um, uh, and, and Friedman was, was an advocate of that, very much so, uh, increasing the economic literacy of Americans. Friedman thought that was very important, that, that, that scholars and intellectuals just didn't sit around talking to one another, but that they explained themselves and their discipline uh, to people who, who were non-intellectuals. And Tom has written uh, dozens of books attempting to do that. It's one of the reasons uh, I've often said that um, he's the best college professor uh, uh, people have ever had, uh, even if they never went to college, because he's used mm -hmm. his books and his columns to explain these basic concepts to people. He thinks it's very important. And I think he got that uh, coming out of Chicago. One of Dr. Soule's most familiar arguments is his opposition to the minimum wage. You made a Sowellian argument in response, writing in the Wall Street Journal that, quote, California's new commission would be able to mandate how much Burger King pays you, but it can't force Burger King to hire you in the first place, end quote. Why do you and Dr. Sowell believe that requiring the what the left calls, quote unquote, a living wage will negatively impact employment? Well, it, it's because there are trade-offs to these policies, and that's something uh, the left doesn't spend a lot of time talking about. They talk about the good intentions of their policies um, as if these policies only have good intentions. But there are trade-offs. There are downsides to pursuing a lot of these policies. So with the example of the minimum wage is if you make the minimum wage and the minimum wage law uh, mandates an increase, you will be better off, provided A, you keep your job, and B, you keep, you're still able to work the same number of hours you were working before. But none of those things are guaranteed. Um, you, you not only may lose your job if you become more expensive to employ or have the number of hours you work reduced because you're too expensive to employ, you may not be hired in the first place if you are currently unemployed because you have become too expensive to hire. And so when people talk about using the, the, the minimum wage, particularly as an anti-poverty measure, um, they have to look at the trade-offs here. If you, if you look at poor families today, people who are actually impoverished, uh, what, you don't, what you see is not a bunch of people earning the minimum wage who need, a, who need a raise. What you see are households where there are no workers. People need jobs, not an increase in the minimum wage. And to the extent that you are increasing the minimum wage, you are reducing the number of available jobs out there. And so I think when you look at a policy like the minimum wage, you need to look at it from all the angles and understand um, that, that you are not just going to help people, and, and maybe maybe not even them, who, who earn the minimum wage right now, but the disincentives that are put in place to hire people 
who are out of work. And, and, and this isn't just conjecture. There have been studies done, uh, not only of minimum wage hikes uh, over the decades and centuries in the U.S. and abroad, but in major cities recently. You know, Seattle was one of the first cities to uh, increase its minimum wage to $15 an hour incrementally over a multi-year period. And the University of Washington put out a study that said what the result here was that people who had been earning the minimum wage ultimately uh, lost money. At the end of this period, they were, they were while Seattle was lifting its minimum wage, uh, employers were reducing the number of hours worked. And so at the end of the day, these workers were worse off in terms of their income than they were before the minimum wage hike went into place. So that's something, you know, you, you have to look at. And that's, the, again, what, what uh, an empirical approach uh, to, to studying public policy is all about. It's not just what the intentions are of a policy, but what actually happens after it is put in place. And that's a good point, because not just the studies that you mentioned, but anecdotally, I mean, we've seen this happen. My hometown of San Francisco, where I was born, I don't live in California anymore. But one of the reasons we left California was for economic reasons. And in San Francisco, when they implemented the hour, $15 an hour minimum wage, one of the very first things that happened, one of the oldest bookstores in San Francisco closed. It could no longer afford uh, to pay the rent that it was paying. It was paying absor uh, exorbitant rent to begin with. Mm -hmm. After the dot-com bust, um, rents went up incrementally. Um, but not only did it not be able to afford the, the rent that it had, it couldn't afford the workers, as you mentioned, um, and also giving things benefits like, you know, health care and those sorts of things. Uh, you know, I, I had told some friends at the time, you know, you don't understand what's going to happen. There's a ripple effect here. You know, as you mentioned, your yeah. hours are going to decrease. Right. Yeah. And if your it, hours it, yeah. decrease under a certain threshold, yeah. you're not eligible for benefits anymore. And if sure. you're not eligible for benefits, what happens if you have a catastrophic catastrophic illness? So yeah. those sorts of things are the unintended consequences of, you know, well-intentioned policies, perhaps. But it does carry a ripple effect. As you say. And, 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 and uh, San Francisco is an excellent example of, of, of what we're talking about here, because it's a city that has long been run by progressives. Um, and uh, these progressives, whether you're talking about, you know, a, a New York, a Seattle, a San Francisco, um, a Los Angeles, you know, these, these are cities where progressives or states where progressives are in control, and they claim to be pushing these policies in the name of helping low-income minorities. Well, progressives have been running San Francisco for a half century, and the Black population of San Francisco today is something like half of what it was in 1970. That's what these policies have done to the people they claim to be uh, enacting the policies on behalf of, running them out of town, That's whether it's making them right. too expensive to, to hire, whether it's putting in place zoning laws that make housing, affordable housing, uh, impossible to build or not worth building at all, policy after policy after policy. Uh, even, even today with the soft on crime laws, with what with, with these, you know, yes. these soft on crime laws are primarily to the detriment of high crime neighborhoods because criminals tend to prey on their neighbors. So you are not helping black people in general, law abiding black people who are the majority of black people by going soft on black criminals. And yet you see these progressives pushing these policies that have these negative effects on the very groups they claim to care about most. 
That's absolutely right. I mean, as we've seen with the recall of Chesa Boudin, I mean, that whoever would have thought in San Francisco of all places that we would see something like that. But you're right. You know, people said that he was soft on crime. All of these businesses who were essentially looted, legally looted, uh, because they would not prosecute crime that was, I think it was like $950 and below. Yeah. I mean, that's just yeah. like, come on in, yeah. take what you need. Yeah. And that's another thing that Sol has talked about uh, in contrasting his youth uh, growing up in the 40s and 50s uh, with what's going on today. Um, you had uh, not only the more intact families that, um, that he's looked back on in the first half of the 20th century that worked to the benefit of Black upward mobility, you also had much lower uh, crime rates uh, in Black communities. And it's, it's very hard for upward mobility to occur when bullets are flying through a neighborhood. Uh, businesses will not want to uh, set up shop there uh, and, 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 and so forth. And, 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 and this chaotic environment that we have in so many of these so many of these communities is working to the detriment of upward mobility. And, and Sol has argued that one of the reasons you saw faster progress in the first half of the 20th century, when obviously racism was, was, was much more rampant and legal in the sense of Jim Crow, you saw faster upward mobility in terms of incomes and home ownership rates and educational achievement back then than you see today due to one, more intact black families but also due to lower crime rates in these communities. And those two things are, of course, related, that uh, someone who grows up in an intact uh, family, in a nuclear family, is much likely to have contact with the criminal justice system, much more likely to finish school, much less likely to uh, uh, become a, uh, a teen parent and so forth and so on. And we saw that, didn't we? In Ferguson, we saw that a lot of the looting and the rioting and all of those things impacted Black businesses more so than anything else. I mean, where do oh, people yeah. shop now? Those They never came back. Some of those shops never yeah. came back. Where do people go to cash checks? Where do people go to purchase their groceries? It decimated those neighborhoods and those neighborhoods may never come back. And so you're yeah. absolutely right. It has a detrimental effect. Yeah, there's, there's, there's the, the left likes to say that poverty... Uh, leads to crime, but I think the truth is closer to the opposite of that. Um, businesses leave crime-ridden communities. Jobs follow. Property values fall. You, you mentioned Ferguson, but this has been a problem going back decades. The rioting in the '60s, these neighborhoods yes. in, in 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 Detroit and 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 Watts, uh, Los Angeles, and 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 Washington D.C. and Newark, New Jersey, have never fully recovered. From what went on back then. And so that what we see going on can have very long, long-term consequences. That's absolutely right. Um, one of Dr. Soul's quotes that might really stand out to the reader comes not from one of his books, but from a 1964 letter written to a Black graduate student. Uh, Dr. Soul writes, Quote, with all due respect to the courage and dedication of the various civil rights groups, I think that when all the laws have been passed and all of the gates flung open, the net result will be one of tremendous anticlimax, unless there is a drastic change in attitude among Negroes, end quote. Would you describe the drastic change that he references and have we seen it in your view? Well, what, what Sol was, was doing back then was critiquing the direction of the civil rights movement at the time. Sol had supported uh, Brown versus Board of Education decision in the 1950s, thought it was the right thing to do. He supported the Civil Rights Act 
of 64 that he was referencing there. He would also support the Voting Rights Act of 1965 a year later. Uh, he thought that these things, though, were not enough to address underlying problems. And, and the problem that he saw uh, was one of uh, cultural uh, development, the development of what economists call human capital, skills, behaviors, attitudes, and so forth. He thought that was much more important uh, than what white people were doing to black people. And that would continue to be much more important. And to the extent that the focus shifted away from that and toward more of a focus on what white people are doing instead of what black people are doing, he thought that they were barking up the wrong tree. And at the time, what was happening in the civil rights movement was a shift um, away from uh, equal treatment and toward special treatment for Blacks. And that is when Seoul started to part ways with the thinking of the traditional civil rights movement. They also started to focus more on attaining Black political power, thinking if we can just get more of our own elected, all the rest will take care of itself. And Seoul had studied and looked at uh, what, it, what, it, what, what had happened among other groups in this regard here in the U.S., but also around the world, uh, where underrepresented minorities had focused on economic development versus focusing on political achievement and political advancement. He'd, saw, he'd seen vastly different outcomes, and he thought that this political route was the much, much less efficient route to go. And he has been borne out. I mean, he, he's been proven true by that over the decades, because this, this push for more political clout among Blacks by groups like the NAACP and so forth was successful on its own terms. Uh, between 1970 and, and, and 2010, I, uh, I think the number of Black elected officials in America rose from something like 1,500 to more than 10,000, including mayors of you know, D D Detroit and Cleveland and Philadelphia and New York and Washington and Los Angeles and so forth, Black senators, Black congressmen, Black state legislatures, on down the road. But did this close uh, uh, the achievement gaps in schools? Uh, did this close gaps in earnings? Did this reduce crime rates and so forth? And the answer is no. In fact, in a lot of these places, under Black leadership, those problems actually worsened. Uh, yes. And that is not to say that they worsened because of Black leadership. What it is to say is that Black leadership was not going to be this elixir, this silver bullet that would take care of the cultural development that, that soul thought should be prioritized. That's absolutely right. Uh, Dr. Soul is sometimes considered the latest and perhaps the last great representative of the classical uh, liberal economic tradition, uh, as we discussed earlier, a tradition that includes Adam Smith, John Locke, uh, Hayek, Friedman. What is classical liberalism and who do you believe will be the voice for the next generation of this tradition? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, um, the classical liberals are the ones you, you, you described there. It's, it is the Adam Smith. It's the uh, David Ricardo's, the um, uh, Thomas Malthus. These are um, British, Scottish uh, uh, intellectuals of the 18th century and the 19th century that laid the foundations for uh, free market capitalism today. Uh, uh, and um, and Seoul certainly uh, writing and thinking in that tradition. Um, he was actually taught by Hayek at the University of Chicago. Hayek was, um, was still alive at the time and teaching at the university when Tom was, was uh, in graduate school there. And as I mentioned before, he um, uh, studied under 
uh, uh, George George Stigler and Milton Friedman as well, who also come out of that classical liberal tradition. And um, uh, it, it's really a belief that um, free markets do a better job of allocating capital and labor and resources than central planning does. Um, uh, even very, very, very smart central planners are not smarter than uh, uh, the free market is. Uh, cannot uh, make decisions for millions of people, uh, uh, decisions that will work to the benefit of millions of people the way the free market can and, and the way price theory uh, 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 suggests that it, that, it, that it will be able to. And, and so that's, that's essentially what, what uh, the uh, classical liberal uh, tradition uh, is, is, is about. And um, going forward, you know, I, I is so the last <laughs> person in that tradition. No, I, I think there are still um, uh, uh, some people out there who are, who are thinking the same way about things. A lot of them are still at the University of Chicago, in fact, but they're, they, are, they're, they are out there. And, and I think that, that that school, that Chicago school has been hugely influential and that's largely because it's been correct. I mean, there, there, there's a reason um, there's no longer a Soviet Union, um, yet the United States has thrived. And it's because uh, our economic system proved to be far superior to theirs um, and the rest of Eastern Europe's. And, and so, uh, no, I don't, I, I mean, you look at the examples of Japan today, um, you look at the examples of, of, of South Korea. Um, uh, I mean, th these, are, these are examples of the superiority of free market thinking. And, and so I think that um, that tradition will continue. It will continue to have its defenders out there. Uh, but those people who, who do feel that way do need to continue to educate the next generation. It's not enough to say, well, Milton Friedman said this and Tom Sowell said this. And so no one else needs to continue saying that. It's all been said before and been said very well. No, I think it's incumbent upon people who, who share those beliefs to continue to educate the next generation again and again and again. And it's one of the reasons I wanted, I wanted to write this book because Sol has, has been so um, influential and mm -hmm. so important in spreading that free market message to people, again, who, who are non-intellectuals, people who don't know a lot about economics. And I was frankly frustrated that people out there knew names like Ta-Nehisi Coates and Nicole Hannah-Jones yes. and, and Cornell West and Ibram Kendi, but not Thomas Sowell, because I think that uh, he's written circles around those individuals, yes. uh, maybe around all of them Put together, and it's not just the range of, of, of what he's written that surpasses them. Uh, it's also the depth and the rigor of his thinking. And I thought that this book was a way to introduce Soul to a new generation. That's absolutely right. If you're just joining us, our guest this segment has been Jason Riley. His new book is Maverick, a biography of Thomas Soul. Jason, how can our listeners best follow your work and find you online? Well, um, you can go to the Manhattan Institute uh, website. If you Google the Manhattan Institute, uh, uh, you can find my work there. Um, you can find me on Twitter at, at Jason Riley WSJ um, and, and follow me on Twitter as well. And, and my books are available uh, on Amazon. And, uh, and, and, and so you can find the books there. 
It was wonderful to reconnect with you and have you back on the show. You know, actually, Dr. Soul has said that he would be on the show. So we're hopeful that that may still happen. Okay. Uh, but if you could put in a good word, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, <laughs> that would that would be helpful. Uh, but it was great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. And now it's that time of the show where we bring in DK for a wrap up. Come on in, DK. Hello. There he is. Whoa. <laughs> How are you? I'm all right. How are you? Okay. That was a great interview. Well, thank you. Uh, great guest. So, uh, you know, that always makes it much easier. What stood out for you today? Uh, well, the discussion you had about uh, the minimum wage, that really stood out because it's just true what you said. If um, if you get these minimum wage jobs, these hourly jobs, and they raise your pay, they will cut your hours, and they will try to cut your benefits. So it does not really benefit you in the long run, not to mention the inflationary effect of everybody at McDonald's making $22 an hour. You know, it hurts poor people more than rich people, obviously, because they eat at McDonald's more often. And, of course, their paychecks are, are going to increase 46%. So... There's a lot to be said against the minimum wage, and Seoul made it very articulately. So did Jason Riley. And, you know, it's interesting because people paint conservatives as, you know, taking food out of granny's mouth and that we don't want anyone to get ahead. But I think we we are sounding the alarm about policies like this and 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 talking about what the unintended consequences are. And the example that I gave, um, you know, the place that 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 lost its business. I mean, this guy saved for this business for years and years and years. And it blew up in his face. I mean, it, the building, uh, as I said, he, he couldn't afford the rent anymore. So that had an effect on his landlord uh, that was renting out that space to him. So that person loses the money. So there's this ripple effect that I don't think that people really um, take into account. And so as you see now, San Francisco is a hot ghetto mess. Uh, you know, there's, there's the very, very wealthy and then there's the very, very poor. And there really is no middle class. So folks like me have moved out. There are a lot of people that are just, I mean, rents are insane in San Francisco. So, you know, definitely, I think that the from a policy perspective, um, there's some merit to what we're saying. And people would do well to listen, I think. It's interesting to me how cruel many people on the left are regarding this issue. I've had I listened to the intellectual leaders of the left, and I've had my battles with people online about this topic. I haven't been banned from every website on Facebook, just just like half of them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's um, and their answer tends to be when you ask them, "How can a small business say if I wanted to open a store, not to get rich, but I want to open a store to sell flowers to my neighbors, for example? I can afford to pay some teenager ten dollars an hour." to help me deliver the flowers, but I can't afford to pay 15 plus all the benefits required by law. And the answer always is that if I can't afford to pay what they decide I need to pay, then I should be out of business. So I'm out of business. The teenager or the retiree who could have benefited from that $10 an hour job is out of work. And the response is always a shoulder shrug. They could care less. They want you to pay $15 an hour, or the case you mentioned in California, $22 an hour, 
And if you can't afford, well, too bad for you. So they care about their ideology more than they care about people. And, you know, that's an interesting point that you bring up about the $22 an hour, because you and I, uh, you know, we talk about we talk just about every day. In fact, we talk multiple times a day. Our audience doesn't know that. But one of the conversations that we had recently, we talked about this meme that came out and it talked about how much you need to make an hour to live in some of the top cities. And we talked about maybe some of the flaws inherent in that. But one of them was you needed to make $38 an hour in California to afford a two-bedroom apartment in that city. I think $22 an hour, uh, you know, that falls well short of the $38 an hour that you would need to make. Who makes $38 an hour? I mean, that's not a minimum wage job by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, I don't see it as being sustainable. It's also very deceptive because the vast majority of people who work minimum wage jobs aren't looking to support a two or four person family, you know, they're not looking to use that minimum wage job to pay the rent exclusively on a two bedroom apartment. The people who work minimum wage jobs statistically are teenagers who are looking for something to do after high school. They're retirees who are, um, who want a second source of income besides their social security check. I think I think you're allowed to make maybe thirteen or eighteen thousand dollars a year before your social security benefits cut. So you see a lot of people like in Costco giving out food samples. They tend to be people in their seventies because they can earn an extra ten, fifteen thousand dollars a year and still collect their social security benefit. Plus they have something to do to get them out the house. It's also people like young adults, like Jason Rowley mentioned that when he was a young man, um, he took a job at Wendy's. He said he went to the other side of town so that nobody would walk in who recognized him. And he got an extra income, which he needed at the time. He said it didn't work because one day his mother walked in. So <laughs> who you know didn't know he was are. working at Wendy's. But <laughs> so that, you know, we're talking about teenagers. We're talking about retirees. We also talk about young adults who are in a transition. We just need a second source of income, probably for a short term until something else kicks in full time. So it's, so that whole uh, stat you were talking about, people who need $38 an hour to support an entire family, that really doesn't exist in the real world. This is African-American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. We hope that you will like this and subscribe to it. Uh, follow us on Bright News Media at brightnews.com. We are also on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts at AACONS. Please subscribe. And also the Bright News YouTube channel. I'm Marie Strotter. I'm DK, DK is with us. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm DK. And we are Acons. Until next time, bye-bye.